So we, I told my wife that we were going to do a sermon series called Being Human, and she's like, how are you going to talk about that? <laughs> so, that's not true. I, she didn't say that. In that tone of voice, at least. <clears throat> so, um, for those of you who haven't been here that long, we did a series a little while back on that were questions that people from the church had handed in, and we all voted on which ones we wanted to hear about, and one of them was the church and society. And I was writing the sermon on church and society. Sorry. Start. On church and society, and I realized I could not do this in one week. There was no way, and I needed some more time to think about it. <clears throat> and then as I was writing, I was like, there's just no way to talk about this without everybody being crystal clear on the doctrine of the image of God. If you don't have that, like, as a, the groundwork for this other stuff, we're, we're not going anywhere. And so I was like, we, so we should do a series on the image of God. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to do a two-week series on the image of God and then a three-week follow-up series to that on the church and society. So that'll be fun. Um, <coughs> the concept of the image of God, that is, that God created every human being to bear his image and likeness, and that that fundamentally defines who and what we are and virtually everything about our ethical choices in every context is one of the maybe half dozen most important truths taught by the Christian faith. Um, everybody wants to affirm that human beings are valuable, and it's very easy to confuse that with meaning that therefore human beings are good. One of the things that is actually fully and truly unique about the Christian faith, that is, it's part of the Christian view of the world that isn't shared by any other philosophy in its entirety, is the Christian doctrine of humanity. That we are profoundly valuable because we are created in the image of God, and we are profoundly broken and in a sinful condition. Therefore, human beings can be a good and still not be good. Human beings can be a good. That is, we are intrinsically a good. The fact that you exist is a good. Like, you're a, you're a significant, meaningful, purposeful thing, but it, that actually doesn't have anything to do with your behavior. You just are that because you have the image of God. There's a couple different ways that people look at humanity when they don't see things through the lens of the Christian worldview in relationship to people. And generally, I just, I'll just refer to them as the, the cynical doctrine of humanity and the romantic doctrine of humanity. The cynical doctrine is basically what everybody over about 26 probably should believe um, because human experience confirms it very quickly. And that is that people are going to basically be self-interested and they can't really, really be trusted. Right? They're, they're, they're not good. Right? And then the romantic view is something like people deep down are good. Like, yeah, people have hard exteriors and people have been through all kinds of stuff and maybe they'll be mean, but deep down, if you get down deep enough, they're good. My favorite um, sparring of these two views of humanity is from the show Scrubs. There's a place where Dr. Perry Cox, who is the, like, internal medicine super doctor with an ego the size of this room and um, is like, you know, he's pretty cynical about life, is having a conversation with, um, with Molly Clock, who is the young blonde psychologist doctor. And Molly Clock says something to Dr. Kelsa, who's like the chief of medicine, and Kelsa's known for being kind of mean. And so 
it sort of frustrates him. He walks away in a huff, and so this is the conversation. Perry Cox says, boy, oh boy, looks like you angered the wrong guy there, Crunchy. Trust me, he'll make you pay for that. Oh, Dr. Kelso's all bust. I bet underneath that, he's a sweetheart. No, no, underneath all that, he's pure evil. Perry, no one's pure evil. I mean, yeah, some people have a hard outer shell, but inside, everybody has a creamy center. There are plenty of people here on this particular planet who are hard on the outside and hard on the inside. So they have kind of a nougat center. Lady, people aren't chocolates. You know what they mostly are? They're scumbags. Scumbags coated with scumbag and with scumbag filling. But I don't find them half as annoying as I find naive, bubble-headed optimists who walk around vomiting sunshine. She touches him on the chest like this. He goes, I'm touching your creamy center. <laughs> she walks away and he goes, I'm so very angry. I think I'm going to find someone to kill just to prove her wrong. <clears throat> the romantic view of humanity doesn't have a lot of empirical evidence upholding it, and yet it persists. And it persists, I think, mainly because there is something inside of us that's intuitive that realizes that there's something spiritually and morally dangerous with letting it go. That if there's something really dangerous about deciding to admit to yourself that people are bad. And the reason why this is important is because that intuition is actually right. It's actually right. It's on to something. Um... It is getting at something because you do know, because you can't not know it, that human beings really are enormously valuable and they are capable of amazing goods. And sometimes they even sort of act like it. Now, one of the fallacies in the romantic view, which is the one that most of us publicly hold, right? So most people are publicly romantics about human nature and privately cynics. Because if you're not publicly romantic, like if people say, are people really good or bad? If you don't say, oh, people are good, then you'll get stigmatized, right? Because you don't want to be one of those terrible people that think people are bad, right? You, you're supposed to be an optimist and say nice things. But inside, what most people really think is, and I'm going to go home and lock my doors this tonight because I'm not going to let him, right? And part of the fallacy is this. It's very easy to believe that because people are a good, they must be good. But the truth is, and this is why the Christian doctrine is so important, it allows you to understand how people can be valuable even when they aren't being good. And that distinction, that people can be enormously valuable— even while or after they have been enormously wicked is incredibly important. Yeah. Now, in our society, there is a strong desire to affirm that people are valuable. Um, there hasn't—the the problem with this is, is that we're in about a 50-ish year experiment now on— of trying to affirm people are good without a philosophical backing for why. In the West, the philosophical backing for why human beings should be treated well is the Christian doctrine of the image of God. Um, 
you will find that language all through Martin Luther King's speeches. You will find it through most moralists up until the very, very end of the 20th century that the reason why you should be treated with respect and your rights can't be taken away and all of that is because you're made in God's image. The problem here is is that in a post-Christian, not that there's ever going to be such a thing because you literally can't be, but in a situation where people deny the truth of the Bible, what God has said through Christ and through the scriptures, and there's no like, there's no true affirmation that people are like God in the sense that they're created in his image, there is very little obligatory basis morally to say you must treat them that way. Now, you can choose to treat them that way. For example, atheists like Richard Dawkins are fond of saying, listen, atheists are just as good as everybody else. They're good people too. They're better than you half the time. And my response to that is, yep. In fact, in fact, I have, my dad was an atheist and he was better than most people that claimed to be religious. I experienced in my upbringing that empirical fact. However, my dad was also intellectually honest enough to admit that he had no theoretical basis for that. I said, why do you treat people that way? Why do you leave a campsite better than you found it? Why do you treat people with that kind of respect? You act like you're a Christian, and then you say you're not one. And he goes, I can't put that. I just do. Because here's why. When you get rid of the Christian worldview, all you have left is being a romantic. The problem is, is that the romantic spirit, the desire to see things as having nougaty centers and creamy fillings inside the hard exterior crust, it fails you when you need it most. It has a middle moral sweet spot where day to day you'll do okay, but in the big painful moments that cost you everything, it will fail. And in the little moments that you feel like are kind of trivial, it'll fail you then too. Only believing deeply and convictionally that the human beings you are dealing with bear on them and in them the representation of the dignity of God himself, will you treat them in the most painful moments like they belong to and are meaningful in relationship to God, and in the little moments, the throwaways, that moment where your kid does something, that you get into the cab and the cab driver talks to you and the tone you use back, and when the server doesn't get your drink right, the way you treat her, and the—those moments will change. Because it will be fully extensive. If we look at our society, you see these places where we've really tried to embody this even though sometimes we see them beginning to break down. We have a democratic ideal. Everybody gets a vote because everybody is worth one, right? Equal protection, everybody should be treated the same by the law, impartially. Or liberty, everybody should be allowed to decide what they pursue. And the respect ideal, that everybody should be treated with respect. But there's lots of ways in which culturally, when it gets, when the rubber hits the road, we don't act this way. And I'm not just talking about non-Christians, I'm talking about Christians. Because sometimes we have no idea how much our feelings and our deeper thoughts are affected by the assumptions of our cultures. There's a lack of constancy in our understanding of what people are divinely worth. Let me give you just a quick example of this. Um, I was reading um, a study done by um, a medical doctor who is pro-life. And he was studying the experiences of families who at their five-month ultrasound find out that the child that the mother is carrying has Down syndrome. So they find an anomaly, they do an amniocentesis, they find the kid that's coming along has Down syndrome, and then they say, okay, in those cases, once you found out, how was, how was your experience with the medical community after that? And what they found, especially 
Well, and they specifically studied the ones that decided not to end that child's life. And they found that almost half of them had had a, had, had a notably negative experience. And um, th- in fact, in one case, they talked to a woman who um, her experience was actually in the delivery room because they didn't know until the child was born. And her delivery doctor came back in and comforted her with this quotation. The only blessing is that they don't tend to live very long. Okay? I don't know if you know this. Do you, do you know what the rate, the rate, abortion rate for, for families that find out they have a Down syndrome child coming is in, in America? In America? It's 90%. It's 90%. Now listen, you might be like, well, what about deformities that are very painful? Listen, I'm not talking about those. I'm talking about Down syndrome, okay? Those kids aren't suffering, okay? You might not like them. You may be suffering, but they're not suffering. It's not like some enormously painful condition. They just can't think right, okay? And here's the thing. When the same doctor worked with two other doctors to do another study where they interviewed families who had adult Down syndrome kids in their families, here's what they found. They found in 90% of cases, parents said that they were profoundly happy and very glad that they were the parent of a Down syndrome kid. 88% of siblings said that they were—they believed that they were just as happy, but a much better person for having a Down syndrome sibling than if they hadn't had one, that it was ultimately a blessing in their character formation. 99% of the Down syndrome adults themselves said they were very happy— and 97% said they were perfectly happy with their lives and the direction of their lives, okay? When we dispose of Down syndrome children, we're not—it's not for them. Let's quit kidding ourselves. It's not for them. They're perfectly happy. They enjoy life. They want to live. They find the things that we get angry about funny. They want to hug and stuff, and they—we're not doing it for them. So when we abort 90% of them as a culture—that includes us who are Christians— when we dispose—you might think I'm getting a little exercise. That's because I had—this something very similar happened to me at our third child, five-month ultrasound, okay? We believe—see, we say human life so valuable to us, so a democratic ideal, respect ideal, liberty ideal, so—no, it's not. No, as long as we're in this chewy middle where it doesn't cost us anything, yes— we will affirm, at least in lip service and in general, maybe political policy or something, something that at least on the face of it says, yes, we— but we don't value everybody the same. We don't do that. And we need to recognize it, because how do you do that? If you are a parent—like, this happened to Alexi and I. We went into an ultrasound. We were, the only thing we were thinking about was, maybe it'll be a boy this time, right? Not because we don't like girls. We just had two of them already, okay? And they're great. They're right here. <laughs> Right? But, you know, most parents want at least one of each. And so we're like, maybe there'll be a boy. And we went in there, and the bomb that got dropped on us was, after, at the next two appointments for them was, probably will never speak and probably will never move. And you still have two weeks left to, left to stop this. Look, like, I, I get to talk—you know in our culture how you're not allowed to talk to something unless you've been there? Which is ridiculous, by the way, morally. But I have been there, so even in that fallacy, I can talk about this. I know exactly what it feels like. It feels like your life is disappearing. It feels like you're going to lose everything. It feels like every prospect of happiness you've ever had is gone. And I do not ha- have any, any despising for, pa- for people in this room who may have been there and may have made the other choice. 
I think it was morally wrong to make the other choice. But listen, I get it. I've had the doctor say to me, you can't be expected, you can do this, there's still this owl, it'll, you know, it's no big deal. I've, I've been there, okay? But, but listen, if you believe that every human being is made in God's image, it's an easy choice. It's the most painful choice I've ever had to make, no question. You know, I mean, for Lexi, it's, you know, every day staying with me. But, in a, but for me, that was the hardest This is the hardest choice I've ever made. Not because it took me a while to make it. I've had much choices that took me much longer to make because I was getting data and I was trying to figure it out, right? That was the most difficult, but you know, we made it in 20 seconds. And it wasn't because of any kind of philosophical complexity or because we're more morally powerful. No, it had nothing to do with that. It's that we had a conviction all the way down to our bones that human beings are made in the image of God and we just don't have the right to deal with them like they're not. That's all. And that, and, and that the constancy in relationship to all things in our lives, whether or not people have the level of consciousness we think they ought to have, or the level of ambulatoriness that we think they ought to, we ought, they ought to have, or the, or the prospect of the pain-free life we assume everybody needs to have. Those are all caveats that really don't mean a thing, especially when we're deciding about their lives. It's also true in relationship to our lack of comprehensiveness. There's some areas where we're pretty good on these things, like, oh yeah, everybody's the same, everybody's valuable, so like the civil rights movement, that was great, right? Okay, awesome. What about divorce? It's the same issue. Do you realize it's the exact same issue? When Alexia and I were two weeks in a seminary and we were both daydreaming about the other one dying because we hated each other so much, One of the reasons why I never contemplated divorce really and finally was like, okay, I need to go get help because this can't go on like this, was because Alexi wasn't the sort of thing I could divorce. It wasn't I didn't want to divorce her. I absolutely wanted to divorce her, and she absolutely wanted to divorce me. Okay? That wasn't the issue. The issue was she wasn't the sort of thing I could divorce because she was a woman and a human and made in God's image. Right? And so she wasn't the sort of thing I could do that with. And so I couldn't do it. That's all. So I had to learn to get along with her, which was, took longer. But also, all the way down to what we would consider trivial things like gossip or like just being mean to people. Why can't you be mean to somebody? Because it's not nice because you won't get what you want in the long run if you're a mean person. Give somebody what they want, they'll give you what you want. Right? That's called atheism. Right? No, the reason you can't be mean to somebody, the reason you shouldn't be snappy with your kids, even when you discipline them, right, isn't because of any other reason other than what they are. The cab driver is a person made in God's image. The server is a person made in God's image. Your child is a person made in God's image. That really annoying person at work is a person made in God's image. Your spouse is a person made in God's image. That's why. Right? In fact, one of the only places where these verses are explicitly quoted in the New Testament is when James is talking about talking bad about other people. He says, we use our tongue to praise God. We use the same tongue to curse other human beings. He said, and he goes, who are made in God's likeness. You can't—that doesn't make sense. Why doesn't it make sense? The only way that logic works is if God himself and something else that wears the likeness of God have a kind of similar moral standing. 
Only if that's true does it, can you praise God and not curse people. If there's not a similar moral standing because the person bears the likeness of God, you could praise God and curse them. The, the whole logic of the verse means you can't because those are fundamentally morally similar. And what you can't do to God, you can't do to them. No matter who they are, no matter what they're like, no matter how ridiculous they are. Does that make sense? Whether or not you agree with it. I'm going to skip this last one. The other reason why, the reason, so, so those are, that's what we live in. And if you don't, the, so why did I spend 20 minutes on that, right? Here's why. Because if you and I don't realize that we are simmering in that all the time, every minute, your feelings, your subthinking, you're being formed by that. You're being cooked in that flavor. And therefore, to not accept that and to not think in those terms and not be shaped by that morally and personally and spiritually and emotionally, you have to intentionally say, that's not what I believe. That's not who I am. That's not what I was created for. That's not what a human being is. You have to convictionally combat it. Does that make sense? There's two reasons why talking about this is so important. One is the moral question, and that is, how do you come up with an obligatory understanding of what you should and shouldn't do? How do you do it? Right? The, in Christian faith, the maybe second most fundamental thing we reason from morally is this, that every human being is made in God's image. You get rid of that, and you try to come up with an idea of human dignity. Like, I remember when I was in, I was in Florida, I was taking classes to get ordained in the, in the United Methodist Church, even though because my seminary wasn't recognized by them. And so I was taking this class, at, it was distance at Oxford in England, and it was on philosophical ethics. It was a graduate level class. And we had to read through basically all these ethical theories, which is basically like, basically, if you don't, if you don't believe in God, or in the, that the Bible reveals true moral ethical theory, how would you make one without appealing to any of that? And I mean, after 2,000 pages, the clearest idea after reading, you know, intuitionism and socialism, I mean, just all these different ethical theories, the clearest thing was nobody could make one. It was like one of those cooking shows where somebody's supposed to make a perfect cake in like nine minutes. And they just all look terrible and the fireworks don't go off and you're like, oh, that's a mess. I mean, it's just, it was just chapter after chapter of that. And it was like, yeah, that's consistent, but there's no reason why I would have to believe it. Or, yeah, that would, that would be work if you wanted to take it on, but you couldn't tell that person they must act in accord with this because it doesn't have the ability to obligate another person. I mean, there's all, there's all kinds of problems. And within the Christian framework— one of the reasons why God gave revelation is so that because we are, partly because we're in the fallen condition, we were going to have trouble discovering these things, and we needed to be told them. And one of the things that he made part of reality and told us about reality is that one of the starting points from which we reason is that human beings are made in God's image. And that morally shapes everything. One of the shows that I've been watching well, I was just watching because I was staying up till like 3.30 a.m. waiting to pick up my brother from the airport. It's this show, it's the first season on Netflix called The 100. I just like dystopian shows. I don't know what to tell you. But there's, um, there's, so basically the premise is, is that Earth is like, 
everybody's dead on Earth because of a nuclear whatever, and all of the human race is living in this one space station called the Ark. And like the main medical officer is having this argument with the main like function like, functionality officer, and he actually tries to kill her and some stuff like that. But they're having an argument about what they're going to do and what he wants to do. Seems fairly unethical because a bunch of people are going to die. But the idea is it's going to save the human race. And her plan may not save the human race, but it doesn't have the ethical problems. And so what he says to her is he goes, listen, I am willing to do anything to make sure the human race survives, right? That's his moral claim, right? Why? Because the number one most important moral thing in this context is survival, right? Here's what she says back. She says, really, that's the difference between you and me. Because I want to make sure that if we survive, we deserve to survive, right? That's— those are very—you I mean, could have a whole ethics class on that. I mean, that is the ethical divide, isn't it? One holds our survival, and you could add in our modern culture the survival of our happiness as the most important obligation we have to ourselves and others. And therefore, we must do, and we are morally obligated to do, whatever is necessary to achieve that. And another person would say, you know what? There are actually some things better to die than for them to be true about you. Now think about this. If you took the average person on the street and you said, what, what would it be better to be dead than to be that thing? Like morally. And you put a mic in their face. What would they say? Right? You wouldn't have to go that far back. I mean, you'd have to go back maybe to the 40s before something like 70% of American men would, be, would say to be thought a coward. Right? World War II, right? They didn't, there wasn't much of a draft if there was one. People just signed up. Because they would rather be thought, they would rather be dead or maimed than to be thought not a patriot and not brave and not willing to lay down their lives for their country. And, right, let me just tell you, I mean, I don't know what you think, but if we had a world conflict like that, do you think we would not have to have a draft? I think we'd have to have trucks driving around, handcuffing people and taking them to boot camp. People just don't—people do not—it would be like—it would be something like they would start talking about, like, XEX crimes with minors. Like, that's what they'd be like. I'd better be—better be dead than that. But stuff like to be a coward, to be a liar. I mean, think about what is Christian martyrdom? To rather die than to denounce that you belong to Jesus. Do you realize how ridiculous that sounds to people? That sounds like the dumbest thing they've ever heard, Right? But it's how the Christian faith won the Roman Empire, right? Bubonic plague hits the Roman Empire. The early Christians, better to die than abandon my neighbor who's a pagan, who, I, who doesn't belong to my faith and maybe not to my race. Better to die of the bubonic plague than to abandon them like their own family just did. Christianity wins the Roman Empire because it dies better than anybody else. You see— <laughs> There is a big moral difference between whether or not you believe down to your toes, you, I cut you, you bleed it. Every human being, you and everybody else, is absolutely made in God's image. And those who don't. If you don't, to quote Satan, skin for skin, everybody will do whatever to save their own life. Why does Satan say that in, in Job about Job? Because it is true for the vast majority of human beings. For the vast majority of human beings, they will do anything to save their skin. Anything. I will do anything to make sure the human race survives. Read, did I survive? But there's another view that says, no, actually there are some things it's better to die than to be. 
there's a moral clarity that is necessary that goes against all of our sinful impulses. And it has to be so strong that we can choose it even when everything inside us is screaming against it. But there's also the formational question. How do we become who we're supposed to be and how do we help other people become what they're supposed to be? Right? If you're trying to become something or help somebody else become something, one of the most important things about that is what is the, th- what is the thing who is the somebody that you're trying to help become the something? What is it? Right? If you're working with yourself, what are you? If you're helping somebody else grow and be developed, what are they? What is a human being? So when we first got our dog, Samwise, we got him at like 10 weeks old because I don't like to deal with other people's, the emotional problems other people put into dogs. And I'm trying to train him, right? And so I'm not, even with children, I'm not particularly um, developmentally appropriate. Like, I'll take a baby and be like, so here's what we're going to do. You know, I, and why. And so I'm going to do this once, and then you'll be able to do it for yourself. And there were points where I'm trying to, like, coach Sammy. And so Sammy, from a fairly young age, when you would talk to him, he'd go like this. And so that encouraged me. <laughs> and I'd be like, oh, you've almost got it. It was kind of like, I've almost got it, but I'm not sure, right? And so I would, and there were points in this process where my wife would say, Nick, he's a dog. <laughs> right? And I'd be like, <sighs> it turns out he is a dog, and that is one of the most important things I had to accept if I was going to help him develop as a well-trained dog. And you see, and now you might be like, well, yeah, but Nick, okay, but I'm not really involved in that. I mean, I'm not like a counselor or a pastor or whatever. I don't really, invo- I'm not really involved in formation, you know, and I'm not a parent yet or whatever. Okay, fine. You're wrong. Because you're forming yourself, You're making decisions every day to form yourself. Every time you decide whether or not to actually open the fridge and take something out, you're just making a decision to form yourself. Every time you decide whether to watch a little bit more television or to binge watch that show or to read that book instead or to not say let that come out of your mouth or whatever it is, every time, or a thought comes in your head and you decide what to do with it, right? Thoughts come in your head, they don't have to just be there. You can do stuff with them. I don't agree with that. That goes over here. That's not what I think. Wait a second. That's a fallacy. This goes here. That goes there. That's not right. I mean, that every, every internal thought, every action, every choice, everything is forming you. Okay, right? And then secondly, there's the whole issue of, have you, have you ever said to somebody, they're like, oh, you know, this is going on, blah, 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 and you go, don't worry about it. Have you ever said that to somebody? Don't worry about it. It's fine. You're a counselor. Okay? You're account- you just told somebody. Basically what the person said is, my conscience isn't okay with something, and it's bothering me, and you go, that has no moral significance. It's fine. You don't even need to tell me about it. I'm your friend. I'll just lie to you. It's fine. Right? Or, or, or stuff like, you know, I mean, all the time, we think that general friendship means just absolute affirmation. We just say stuff, little things that basically say, yeah, go in that direction, or don't, yeah, do that over here. It's fine. You're a counselor. You're forming people. You're helping people coerce themselves into doing whatever they want to, which is usually a terrible idea. And what a friend is for is to say, I'm not sure that's the right thing, or are you sure that's what he meant, and so on. 
The idea that you are not involved in the formation of others is totally false, and you're intimately involved in the formation of yourself. And to do either of those even decently well, you better know what you are, and you better know what they are. And the most fundamental truth about what you are and what they are is that you are a being created in God's image with certain profound capacities for amazing things because of it, and you are in a sinful condition that wields those things, sometimes in terrifying ways. Okay? So now that we're most of the way through the sermon, let's talk about the doctrine itself. If you only take one thing away from what is the implication of the doctrine of the image of God, I hope it's this, and that is, is that you and I are meant to reflect the one in whose image we are. We are meant to reflect the one in whose image we are. We are made in God's image. We are designed and we are meant to reflect that image, right? Oops, wrong button. So if you ask the question, okay, so Nick, where does this even come from? The answer is it starts on the first page of the Bible. Right in Genesis 1, after God creates everything else, he gets to the end of creation and he, he creates those who are going to care for and rule over creation. And this is what God says. God said, let us make man in our image, and in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and the birds of the air, and over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his image, his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. We'll come back to that verse next week. Rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and over every living creature that moves along the ground. In chapter 5, of Genesis, after the fall, God reaffirms this in this passage. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created the male and female and blessed them. And when they were created, he called them man. And when Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son, and notice the language again, in his own likeness and in his own image, and named him Seth. One of the things that you'll know is that in both cases, in the early part of the Bible, in which the image of God is spoken about, it explicitly says both male and female, right? And then after Noah, so there's the flood, and Noah comes off the ark, and God speaks to him about the future. What's going what's to happen now? How things are going to go now that the flood is over? And he says this, everything that lives and moves will be food for you. It's a biblical warrant for being an omnivore, right? Just as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. But you must not eat meat that has its lifeblood still in it. And for your lifeblood, meaning the lifeblood of you, a human, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal, that is any animal that kills a human, and from each man, too, I will demand an accounting for the life of his fellow man. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God, God made man." And then reaffirmation of the family mandate. So there's this, there, there's this clarifying that not only is the image of God so important, and is it in both genders, and is it in all people, but it is so critically important that if you kill somebody, your life is forfeit. Period. Because the intrinsic value of a human is so high that you, you just can't deface it. Now, people get in long and relatively tedious sometimes discussions about, well, what does that mean? 
What does it mean that we're made in the image of God? Does it mean like that we're rational like God? Does it mean that we have the capacity to love or relate like God? Does it mean that we have a spirit like God and therefore some kind of immortality? Does it mean that like we have moral capacities like God for holiness or something like that? What does it mean, right? And people have written, a lot of ink has been spilt on this issue. And theologians tend to favor reason, and you can imagine if you're a systematic thinker, philosopher person, that you might think reason is the most important capacity human beings have. Um, The best answer I've seen on that one is this passage from Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. Um, So let me just—I'm just going to read it to you. You'll be—you'll thank me, because otherwise it would take me 50 minutes to say this. In this discussion, meaning what is—what does the image of God refer to in human beings— It would be best to focus attention primarily on the meanings of the words image and likeness. As we've seen, these terms had quite clear meanings to the original readers. When we realize that the Hebrew word for image and likeness simply informed the original readers that man was like God and would in many ways represent God, much of the controversy over the meaning of the image of God is seen to be a search for too narrow and too specific a meaning. When scripture reports that God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, it simply would have meant to the original readers, let us make man to be like us and to represent us, because image and likeness had these meanings. Scripture does not need to say something like, the fact that man is in the image of God means that man is like God the following ways. Intellectual ability, moral purity, spiritual nature, dominion over the earth, creative ability to make, to make ethical choices, and immortality, or some similar statement. Such an explanation is unnecessary, not only because the terms had clear meanings, but also because no such list could do justice to the subject. The text only needs to affirm that man is like God. And the rest of Scripture fills in more details to explain this. In fact, as we read the rest of Scripture, we realize that a full understanding of man's likeness to God would require a full understanding of who God is, in his being and in his actions, and a full understanding of who man is and what he does. The more we know about God and man, the more similarities we will recognize, and the more fully we will understand what Scripture means when it says that man is in the image of God. The expression refers to every way in which man or humanity is like God. It's the best explanation of that I've heard. I agree with that. The second thing to recognize is It's one thing to say that we're made in the image of God. It's another thing to recognize. You have to recognize what condition that's in. So if I say, I'm going to give you a Ferrari, okay? You might be very excited about that, even though for somebody with six people in their family, that doesn't sound real practical. Um, But I would be excited, right? But then you might say, okay, wait a second, what's the catch? And I might say, the catch is, is that it's in a thousand pieces, right? Then you wouldn't be as excited, right? No, is the answer to that question. Thank you. Um, Do you see what I'm saying? Like, the condition something is in is similarly important, and the Bible is really clear about the condition that that the divine image is in. It's in a a broken, depraved, twisted, bent condition. And the Bible calls that the flesh or the sinful nature, and it means that though we're created in the divine image, um, that image is infected and infused with and bent by and broken by the sinful nature. And this is one of the reasons why Christianity inherently disaffirms philosophies that say, if you want to know the truth, look inside. If you want to find the answer, look inside yourself. I mean, Christian's response to that is, if you want to see a mess, good and bad, all tangled together, and you can't really tell which is which some of the time, 
look inside yourself. Right in here. Right in here. Um, however, that's our condition, the present condition. However, the Bible talks about a possible condition. That is the condition of regeneration or redemption. Christ came, died, and rose from the dead and offered salvation to human beings. And part of that salvation is spiritual regeneration. That God, in his own spiritual power, when you trust in Christ, Christ and the person of the Holy Spirit comes to live in you and begins to rearrange and act upon that mess. And it begins to, he begins to remake the image. Now that metaphor is not used in a lot of places. All, there's all kinds of metaphors for redemption. The new birth, you know, new life, raised from the dead. All, there's all kinds of metaphors. But there's a couple places where it specifically talks about the remaking of the divine image. Because that's the most literally what's happening. And ultimately, the final condition of the image of God will be, a com- will be a confirmation eternally either of the deformed state in damnation or the rejuvenated, regenerate state in ultimate glorification. Right? Let me just, a couple of verses, let me read you the Colossians 1. So here's what it says in Colossians 5.11 about people who've, who've come to Jesus and put their trust in him. It says, put to death, he's like, he's like this, is how, this is how to live it out, right? Now he says, in there where the sinful nature and the, and the image of God are fighting with each other, the things that Jesus has told you and that you know are part of the sinful nature, not part of the divine image, that is what, is what he calls what is earthly in you, is the metaphor used here, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, covetousness, which is idolatry, those things, which he's like, yeah, those aren't part of the divine image, those are part of the sinful nature. You can like— Kill those. You do what you can to resist them. And then it says this, On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these two you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Right? These are all signals. What he's saying is, these are part of the sinful nature, not part of the divine image. And therefore, you can attack those things with God's help. But then he says this, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self. Now look, listen to the next part. Which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Right? See, see what he's saying is the end game. So he's talking about the old self and the new self and put to death. And there's all these metaphors of salvation. But he gets to the end and he actually takes a more literal turn now. And he says, here's what's actually happening. In all this process of the Holy Spirit being like, nope, not this, yes, this, and you're fighting against the sinful nature, and you're trying to live into the Spirit, and you're trying to live out the divine image without giving yourself to the contortions of the flesh. He's saying, here's what's happening. The Holy Spirit is renovating the divine image. You're learning again. He's teaching you to remember again what the divine image even is and to live into it. And when that knowledge is being renewed, you're being renewed in the image of your creator because you were always in his image and that image is being renewed. Does that make sense? Now, the, the issue then is, if Christianity just sort of rules out the whole look inside for the truth, then the question has to be, okay, wait, if I'm creating God's image and it's broken and it's all a mess and I can't look inside myself to find the truth, what am I supposed to do? And the answer is, that's why God gave special revelation. That's why Christianity is a rel- revelatory religion rather than a derived religion. If you could sit under a tree and think long enough and come to enlightenment, we wouldn't need an incarnate Jesus who died for our sins. We wouldn't need a revealed Bible inspired in its authors by God the Holy Spirit. We wouldn't need those things. But God believed we did need those things. 
And the greatest and most clear revelation is Jesus. But what does Jesus reveal? The way of salvation. He is the way of salvation. But, but what is he? Literally, what is Jesus? Jesus is the God-man. Now, now think about how strange this is. We say that Jesus is fully God and fully man, right? He's 100% divine. He is God. And he's 100% really human. Now think about this. Do you think maybe it's only possible to have an incarnation because God already created human beings in his image? So that when it happened that he would become incarnate, the being that he would come incarnate as was already enough in his likeness that there could be a compatibility between his divine nature and his human nature? Could he become incarnate in a squirrel? I don't know, frankly. But I think there's a connection between those two, but we can't get into that right now. It's a little speculative, right? But everybody loves squirrels. The point, though, is— The point is that Jesus is the true humanity. He is himself the image of God in his divinity, and he is the only pure humanity. He is the only human who's ever lived out the divine image perfectly, and the flesh, not at all. It's the only one. And so if you want to see what that division looks like, there is a very clear place to look. It is Jesus. And Jesus does many things for us, but that's one of them. Jesus is the one who differentiates and begins to separate. He's, he is the sin divine image centrifuge. And as he spins you and you look at him, these, they begin to come apart and separate. And you go, oh, that's the divine image, and that's the sinful nature. They are so intertwined now, it's hard to even imagine how they separate. But that's the process he takes us through. Right? For example, in Colossians 1.15, it says that he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. Like, we bear God's image, but he is the image Right? In Hebrews 1, 3, it says the Son, that is Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Right? And in 8, 29, it says, for those he foreknew, God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son. That's not a throwaway word. When we read that passage in Romans, we were think, predestined? That, that offends me. Okay. Well, but look, the word likeness is there. Do you see that? That's not a throwaway word. That doesn't just mean more like Jesus. That word likeness is a key word. It means into the likeness of his son. What happens when we get conformed to the likeness of his son? We get conformed to the likeness of who we are. Because we already bear the divine image. When we get remade into the likeness of Jesus, who is true humanity, as he is true divinity, we we get conformed to, to him. As we do so, we become who we are who we are created to be. We relive into the image. The image is renovated in us so that he can glorify it eternally, ultimately. And it starts by looking at Jesus, but Jesus, you're not going to have coffee with Jesus this week, literally, physically, right? But Jesus is testified in the Bible, but the Bible not only has the clearest testimony about what Jesus was like, it also has lots of other stuff that keys us in on the difference between the flesh and the spirit. So, for example, when the Bible says, don't have any other gods besides me. First commandment, right? Now, if we were only living in the divine image and not in the flesh, we, I mean, we would be like, thank you, Captain Obvious, God, we know, right? I mean, we wouldn't say it like that, but we'd be like, yep, got it, right? It's like, you know, it's like a 13-year-old daughter. I know, 
I already know that. Um, see, that wasn't one of your ages, so it wasn't about you. Um, <laughs> speculative, it's speculative. So, the, you know what I mean? It's like we know. But see, because we're what we are, we're the divine image wrapped up in the sinful nature, God goes, don't have any other gods besides me. And we go, well, isn't that a novel idea? I never thought of that. You know, it's just because having other gods, other salvations that get us what we want so that we can save ourselves and our happiness makes perfect sense to us. And then he comes and he goes, yeah, you're not going to want to do that. Because God doesn't do that. God only values what is ultimately valuable, which is himself. He doesn't have any other gods, and we shouldn't either, right? And he's like, don't commit adultery. Why? Because God doesn't—God's not a cheater. God's faithful, right? Don't covet somebody else's things. God doesn't take what isn't his. Now, that's convenient because everything's his, but he doesn't take what isn't his, (laughs) right? If there was another God and he created another creation, God wouldn't take it, right? That's— That's very counterfactual. The point is, is that all of those things point us to the character and behavior of God himself. Why? Because we're supposed to behave morally in terms of holiness the way God would act, even though we're never going to be omniscient or omnipotent, in the humility of receiving his communicable attributes, they're called ways we can be similar to God. We can be. That's why we call it godliness. Why do you call it godliness? It's it's being a godling. That is, in all the ways we can, we want to be as like God as possible. And listen, think about this. There's some nobility to saying, I want to be like God as much as possible, though I know I don't get to get any of the fun stuff. Right? Like, at no point are you going to be godly and be like, I'm going to—I think I'm going to create something. Ready? You're like, at no point do you get any of the, like, super fun attributes. Right? It's just, it's just obliviousness to think that you do, right? People get God complexes like, I think I have authority. No, you don't. Mm-mm. Sorry. No. You just get to be God. You get to be humble and loving and all those things, right? And you don't get the other things, and that's what we're made to be, right? So the Bible, and as that's formed in other people, the church should be a repository of people that should be decent examples. Remember Paul actually said, I, I mean, I remember there's somebody in this room who's like, I don't see how he could say that. I remember talking to him. He's like, well, apparently he could. He goes, anything you've seen in me, put it into practice, right? I mean, I'm hoping to get there. Wouldn't that be awesome if you could say that to somebody? Anything you've seen me do, any remark, attitude, anything, just go ahead and do it. Just copy it because it's, it's awesome, <laughs> right? That's— but some people are pretty—are closer to that than others, and there's definitely people closer to that than you and me, Right? find them and emulate them. And then there's a certain bit you can learn from the humanity of humanness. For example, you can learn that you can know somehow that there's something great inside of you that you're meant to be. There really is. That intuition is right, but you can't use that as your authority. Those other three authorities have to help you interpret this experience. Let's end with this. You and I are meant to reflect the one in whose image we're made. There's this passage that gets talked about in relationship to church and state issues where Jesus is talking with some folks and they go, Jesus, so we're supposed to pay taxes. And Caesar's not, you know, a good Jewish person. Should we pay taxes to Rome or shouldn't we? And Jesus, said, Jesus gives a really interesting answer. He says, he says, somebody pull out a denarius, like a, the Roman coin. He's like, whose image is on that? And, he go, and they go, well, Caesar. And he says, okay. 
Well, then give it to him. It's his. Now think about that. Okay, now most of the time we look at this passage and we go, what that means is there's a certain sphere of the state and there's a certain sphere of the church. And the church has the sphere of salvation and godliness and the formation of moral culture and so on. And the state has a different sphere and they're different from each other. And Caesar should stick to what he does well and the church should stick to what it does well. And that's not a bad use of that passage. That's not the point of the passage. The point of the first verse is, is what? Pull out the coin. Whose picture's on it? Caesar's. So therefore, who owns it? On some level, Caesar does. Why? Why does Caesar own it? Because his picture's on it, right? You get it? Get it? Now the next line. Give to Caesar what's Caesar's and to God what's God's. You, so it's kind of like a good joke where there's like not one wasted word. You get it? What's God's image on? And now this is very specific because if you look at the Greek translation of the Old Testament, icon, the, or we get icon, right? Picture. That word which Jesus uses here, the first places it shows up in the Greek New Testament are right there in Genesis 1 and Genesis 5 and Genesis 9. So any readers of that Greek New Testament, which would be virtually everybody Jesus is talking to, he used, he used that word intentionally. Whose image? So here's the—what's the implicit argument? Jesus is saying, whose image? So what do you get? Because otherwise it's vague, right? Give to God what's God's. Well, what's God's, right? I mean, have you ever read that and gone like, what? Jesus, that's kind of a vague ending, right? So we got to give the government money and we give God some vague thing that belongs to him. It's not vague at all, is it? Nope. Caesar gets the coin because his image is on it. So the question for God is, what is God's image on? That's the question. It's implicit. You got to be paying attention a little bit. There's only one thing that God's image is on, and therefore we should give to him. Us. So why he told them to pull out the coin, he could have just been like, yeah, pay the taxes. He didn't. He intentionally didn't say that. He said, take out a coin whose image is on it. Because when he said, so give to God what's God's, you would read that and you would go, oh, I see what he's doing. Give to God what's God's, his image is on me. I have to give myself to him. You see, the number one implication of the image of God is, is not actually respecting other human beings. We'll talk about that next week. There's a lot of implications of the image of God, but not the first one. The first one is that you belong to God and you must give yourself to him. That's the number one. You're in his image is on you. You belong to him. You must give yourself to him. That's, and it depends on your attitude, whether that's good news or bad news. The good news, even if you think it's bad news, still is he demands what he wants. Right? He demands what he wants. He wants you. Not in an oppressive kind of way. Not in a mean kind of way. He created what is his own because he wanted it to exist and he values it. He demands it for himself because it rightly belongs to him and he wants it. He would demand back that which he didn't want. Because you are, you are divinely demanded because you are divinely wanted. And that's why you were only created in God's image, but God sent his image in the person of his son to die and to rise from the dead on your behalf so that you could be set right with God because your first responsibility as someone made in God's image is to give yourself to him. The question is just, will you? Let's pray. 
Father, um, for those of us that believe in Jesus and trust him, um, we recognize we should want really desperately to understand this truth and to embody it fully. To believe it for ourselves, to believe it for our neighbors, Christian or non-Christian, to believe it for the people of our city and our nation, for people of other language and tongues, for people who count themselves and we count our enemies, for people in our families, for estranged people, for people who have sinned against us and hurt us, for criminals, for people who we don't think are fulfilling their responsibilities, for everyone. God, we want to believe in the truth of their true value and your image in them. And we want to see every ounce of our effort go to living out the universal mandates that come from being made in your image and the specific mandate of redemption, of drawing all people back to the reclamation to reclaim your image in them through Christ. Would you please remake us spiritually, morally, truthfully, doctrinally in every way so that we believe, know, see, and live out the truth of what and who we are? I pray in Jesus' name.